And after bullying that kid for a year, that kid snaps and retaliates. But what made that kid snap? In the early stages of a murder investigation, time can be your enemy. When Mr. Fogelman was found, he was um, lying with uh, his back on the floor at this, this area here. But when enough of that time passes. Just because it was, uh, hasn't been solved uh, or closed at this point doesn't mean that it was perfect crime. It can become innate. It affects their opinions on what they saw and they try to fill in blanks that might not have really been there and it's just because they're trying to be helpful. Several detectives have walked through Joanne Fogelman's front door since January 2002. Okay, so if I may, this is the interview with Joanne Fogelman. But in 2021, a new face, a new first look. It's just a lot of information, so it's really about organizing all of the information and assessing what has to be tackled first. Filing through folders and binders, boxes and bags, looking for something several things. I think DNA is a possible one, especially because the databases have become so vast. In search of a killer or killers, dead or alive, the person or people who tore Tom Fogelman from his family. The majority of them are interconnected in one way or another, so it's a possibility that it could be. I'm Fox 8's Michael Hennessy. We go inside the mind of the person behind the latest set of eyes on the Fogelman case in episode three of A Country Store Killing. Uh, it's a horrible crime. It's not your average um, uh, robbery and, and murder. This, this person uh, died a violent death. On the night Tom Fogelman was killed, January 23rd, 2002, teams of investigators assembled at the Fogelman store. A dreary night to embark on what became a daunting task. Well, it's frustrating for us and certainly frustrating for the family. The crime scene tape went up, flashing lights lit up the night. Deputies stopped people passing by. They took pictures of Tom's lifeless body, blood staining the floors he once ran on as a little boy. Boxes, which once held items stacked on the store shelves, were filled with evidence carried to trunks spread out on tables inside the Alamance County Sheriff's Office. Investigators believe his killer did it for the cash in his shirt pocket and several cartons of cigarettes. A motive was established. A hammer, thought to be a murder weapon, found, but... As the seasons changed, from winter, spring, to summer, to fall. The store closed 10 months ago, the day after someone brutally murdered the owner. And winter once more, the case, like the weather, went cold. There's quite a bit of physical evidence that was collected originally that we've maintained um, throughout the duration of the case being investigated, and that's all being maintained within the sheriff's department. Winter 2021. If I can just get some of the background history. A detective by the name of Barbara Tommy stepped into Tom Fogelman's sister's living room for the first time. It was a Monday, February 22nd. When your family property was there and you're- Getting acclimated at Joanne's kitchen table. Have been in the military for 13 years and then I started in Greensboro Police Department and I went to Burlington Police Department and then about two years ago I transferred to the Alamance County Sheriff's Office. We sat down at Tommy's second home later that week, a conference room at the Alamance County Sheriff's Office about three weeks after the first time she opened any of the Fogelman files sitting in its evidence locker. They wouldn't let us in there to see where everything is, but video from a story we shot in 2006, when they did let us in, 
shows shelves upon shelves of boxes behind a metal gate, and among those boxes are several sealed with clear and red tape, yellow labels reading evidence, Alamance County Sheriff's Department. Case number 2002012223. Offense, homicide. Victim, James Thomas Fogelman. And they all keep all of the written documentation for the case. There's a entire shelf on a cabinet that's specifically devoted to this case. And it's full from end to end with all of the information that's gone through every detective that's been put on the case and any notes they had, any of the crime scene information, anything that had to do with what they might or might not have developed. Tommy says there are 13 binders with about a thousand pages in each. Those three weeks she had to go through them, the equivalent of a glance compared to the length of the investigation, but a first look she had to take before going to see Joanne. For the interview that I did earlier this week, all of those questions were thought out a day before I even went out there. As she explains, the first 48 hours of a murder investigation are crucial, but 48 months, 228 months later even, solving that murder isn't unworkable. It just takes a lot more effort. I'm different than every other investigator. I'm different than any other primary person that responds to a scene, and I have different questions than they do. And so when I walk into something, I need to physically be able to answer what coincides with those things. And you have everything roped off during that technical, the world says, first 48 hours. Um, and you can go back to the scene repeatedly until you've released it and find those answers. And if you can't find them, then you know this is something that I need to track down. And I don't have that opportunity with this which makes it harder but not impossible. It's very fixable, but it just takes a lot more work in the aspect of I have to organize my questions before I go interview someone. I have to look through absolutely everything and determine do I need a specialist to answer this question for me? Do I need someone that lived in the area to answer this question for me and is that the only question that i have and if that were a yes from this person do i need to ask additional questions or can that answer it completely in just that one question so everything has to be really and truly thought out and that's why she has to start with the people who were there those closest to tom the family to have a true understanding of the location of the store and how it was run and the people that would be closest to him that knew his personality and his background and any friends or family members that he spent a lot of time with and I've been starting there and I'll slowly work my way out um, to people that were other people he might have been romantically involved in or people that were near the neighborhood and so on and so forth until I've talked to everybody, but it'll just take quite a bit of time. Asking about facts, features, nuts and bolts. The layouts of the rooms are important because you have to be able to know which people or neighbors that might have seen something. It's important to know what kind of common access roads are there. Um, possibilities of entrances and exits, 
and you kind of have to do a role reversal and say, if I were this person, what's the easiest way in and out? Like if you were saying, I need to go from Greensboro to Graham, the easiest way in and out will be I-40. Am I close to an exit that's near I-40? Or if I need to walk in the building, what's the most common access to the building? What's the accesses that aren't common to the buildings? And what's the path where if I have 50 witnesses that say they saw nothing, which direction would you have to go to see nothing? Listening to assumptions, hearsay, theories. A lot of the family members and things have come out and said what they believed happened, but I don't have any preformed opinions on anything currently, so I can't go into any further detail about it. And to get an idea of how the events on that January night not only changed the family, but changed the store, the people who shopped there and place they called home. And it had a major impact on everyone who lives in Alamance County because it's not that common that you walk out your front door one day and really realize that there's people that are capable of such graphic things and it could have been you or it could have been a family member. It impacts each person as an individual because they put themselves in that person's shoes and so it, it terrifies a com an entire community. Through everything that the family said, Mr. Fogelman was OCD, but he was also kind of a hoarder. And Joanne, even the other day talking to you, was saying she didn't even know how they got the body out of there because everything was so stacked up and it was so narrow in there. When there's that much, quote unquote, junk at a crime scene, how easily can something get lost that could be important? I think it's possible, um, but I think that through just departmental policy and procedure and development of how things are investigated, that as long as they're consistently done systematically, it's not that likely. But I wasn't there, so I can't really say whether or not something was or wasn't lost. Asking these questions all while reviewing what the detectives before her looked at, trying to figure out what each of those former investigators could have missed. But I know that it's been several uh, at least three or four, if not more. And how hopeful are you through the first three weeks that you're going to be the one that actually solves it? I don't think that I'm hopeful that I will be the one. I'm just hopeful that there will be an answer and that I can even make headway, to, like even if it's two paces towards the end result of finding who did it, then that's better than nothing. There are many theories as to whether the killer is a stranger or someone Fogelman trusted, whether the attack was planned or on impulse, someone knows the truth. The family and investigators want that someone to come forward. For years, there were thought to be two truths. The motive, robbery. The murder weapon, a hammer. I haven't formed an opinion on the weapon. Um, I don't have any physical evidence right now that's pointing me towards a specific direction. I can't tell you why it was believed at the time that that was a weapon of choice. But Tommy's not convinced on either of those. It's possible, but I don't have a full opinion because I also have other things that state that the items weren't always in the same place. So I would have to have someone come forward as an eyewitness that would particularly tell me I was there that week, I know for a fact that it was here. So if someone does have that information, then that would be helpful. But 
I can't confirm or deny that that was actually in the store. So do you have any sort of idea what a motive could have been at this point? I do, but I can't disclose it. Another thought is there may not have been a true motive. It could have been as simple as timing. Here's an example. If you really look at it, absolutely everyone is not only capable, but if you push them past a breaking point, then they will get upset over something. It may not always be the same thing, but that's just like, okay, if you take the school bully, the school bully and bullies 15 different kids, but picks one kid in particular, and after bullying that kid for a year, that kid snaps and retaliates. But what made that kid snap? It was the two years of everything else. The kid didn't go to school thinking, oh, I'm going to retaliate today. He just, he or she just finally breaks and says, okay, that's enough. That's my line in the sand. So a lot of people aren't aware that people really and truly have a line in the sand. Even though she started with the people Tom trusted most, when we sat down with her, not a single person had been ruled out as a suspect, and she certainly had not narrowed down her list to a specific number of people. I don't think that there's a specific number that I could put on it. Um, it's potentially anyone that did come in the store, anyone that knew the family, and anyone within the relative space within a reasonable distance of where it actually happened during the time frame that it happened. What is the potential that whoever did this could be dead at this point, and if that person is dead, how do you manage to pin it on them? If they have passed away already, then if the evidence that we have that out of the DNA pools that we have that came from the original scene, if it matches, then that's great. But it, it really and truly comes down to the absolute totality of the circumstances and the totality of the evidence. For me as an individual, I have to say 99.9% that I can absolutely tell you because of 150 things, not a specific number, but 150 things that I found that this is why, this is why I believe that the person that's deceased did it. Many of those things likely already found by the detectives who came before. Uh, there's a reason she was chosen over people who may have even been around when the murder happened. And it goes beyond what she said earlier about not having any preformed opinions. Most investigations are always a team effort. And one person puts something in place over here, and one person puts something in place over here, and then the person that's in the middle goes, hey guys, we can do this and this to connect all three. And really the fresh set of eyes connects all the dots that were there, and other people laid the foundation for those dots to be connected. So I'm really just the person that's looking from an outside view as a third party that says, I think that you really had something here and let me figure out how we can get to where you were trying to go, but you hit a roadblock. That said, it doesn't mean she's not fact-checking her predecessors or anything she's hearing firsthand. I will never ever just take the word and say, oh, okay, that was already investigated because there might have been, at no fault of anyone's, a question that was missed, uh, a discussion that wasn't significant at the time because a more important lead came up. Um, so to 
ensure that I'm the most thorough that I can be, I will always go back through even if it's been debunked by someone else and confirm that that still needs to be debunked and that the process was proper and everything else is consistent with what I've found now. People's information as they get older or the more that they talk with other people changes and their opinions change because it's kind of like playing telephone in a room and it, by the time you get to the end of the telephone line the statement's completely different and I don't think that people do it intentionally it's just something that happens because you're like oh yeah that's what it happened or no I think you're right and it affects their opinions on what they saw and they try to fill in blanks that might not have really been there and it's just because they're trying to be helpful. The other benefit of being so far removed from not only the case itself, but when it happened, is that technology's changed for the better when it comes to solving crime, especially while examining something that doesn't change and is unique to each and every one of us. I think that the um, pools of DNA that we can pull from and the resources that we have are much wider than what they were because it used to be that each department was individualized and what they had was just strictly for them. Um, but as the databases have grown that that becomes a vast majority and a possibility. Even if she isn't able to bring a close to the Fogelman case, Tommy views her involvement as encouragement for the family that there's hope they'll see this story's finale before their final curtain. I think every family thinks that it's a good thing because it means that we still are actually investing the time and the care. And so I don't think that it's a good thing that I'm necessarily the person doing it. Could it be anybody? It's just a simple representation that as a department, we genuinely and truly care about the people that live here and it reassures them that we genuinely have a vested interest in finding out what happened so that they may have justice. That happened earlier today because I wanted to talk to a specific person about the autopsy and I was given a telephone number and a name and said, hey, this is who you need to call. As Tommy searches for ways to take those two steps forward, learning as she navigates her way, Tom's family's still dealing with the reverberations from what shook their family to the core. Maybe not in my lifetime. Sooner or later, sooner or later, they'll talk. Nearly 20 years later. It got chopped up pretty good. The images of that night and the days to follow. You're talking every bit of blood he had in his body. Front of mind, as though they were seeing him for the first time. A back-breaking weight waiting to be lifted. I think it changes you as a person and not in a positive way. We examined the lasting impact Tom's unsolved murder still has on his family next time in episode four of A Country Store Killing. If you like the podcast, please subscribe to it, comment on it, and spread the word to help us as we try to get this family the answers they've been pleading for for all this time. If you want to see video of the murder scene, pictures of Tom, get a better idea of what the people you're listening to look like, you can find all of our on-air stories on our website. That's myfox8.com. Just search a Country Store Killing, which is written by me, Michael Hennessy, edited by photojournalist Chris Weaver, and our executive producer is Kevin Daniels.